0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the Modern Classrooms podcast. I'm Kareem Farah, co-founder and executive director of the Modern Classrooms Project. I'm joined by co-host Zach Diamond, a Modern Classrooms implementer and mentor at DC International School.
1: Hey, Kareem, how's it going?
0: Good. How are you? How are you?
1: Doing good. Just got started uh, in pre-service, so pretty busy, but doing good.
0: Fantastic. And then we're also joined by our new co-host, Monty Woodard, a wonderful middle school science implementer of the model and also mentor. Monty, can you introduce yourself and share a little bit more about yourself, your teaching experience, your background, all that good stuff?
2: Yeah, of course. Hi, everybody. My name is Monty, and I am entering into my fourth year of teaching. And I was a modern classroom implementer last year, so I did go through the fellowship program. Um, I recently moved from Washington, D.C., so I was at DCI with Zach last year, um, and now I am in Florida teaching at um, a really large middle school. It's almost 2,000 middle schoolers at this school, very large middle school in um, South Florida. Fantastic. Well, welcome, Monty. We're so excited to have you as a co-host. You're
0: going to bring such an interesting perspective. It's exciting to have you know three former implementers all in different stages in their career and at different points with the model. And today's discussion is going to really focus on how teachers can actually roll out our blended self-based, mastery-based model with students, parents, stakeholders, both in person and remotely, because obviously we know the challenges of the current moment. Now, if this is your first time listening to our podcast, I strongly encourage you to actually listen to the first episode before you jump onto this one, just to make sure you actually understand all the components of the model itself. Um, but what we're going to do today is just get started by hearing a little bit more about Monte You. Uh, what's your current experience sort of starting the school year off? Like, are you starting in person? Are you starting remotely? What's going on with that? What is it looking like for the next few weeks for you?
2: Yes. So this has actually been a very... Um anxiety proving point of my life. Um, As of right now, we are set to resume in-person classes on August 31st with the first week of school, which starts on the 24th, being kind of like a smart start week. So that will be fully virtual um, where I guess we're supposed to go over, you know, procedures and expectations with students before they show up on the 31st for in-person classes. Got it. Well, you know, I think
0: you certainly share what a number of educators are feeling right now, which is just general steady state feeling of anxiety and uncertainty around what is to come. So you're not alone there. And I think your perspective today is obviously going to help other educators who've never even implemented this model, kind of think through how they can prepare for implementation. And Zach, can you talk a little bit about how you're starting the school year off? Because I know your circumstances are quite different.
1: Yeah, they are. So DCI is starting um, fully online, fully virtual. They're having us roll out everything online. Um, We're doing a mix of video lessons, and so, you know, they'll call it asynchronous and synchronous learning, so live instruction. Um, And we've actually been encouraged by admin to have that live instruction focus more around community building, um, sort of activities, things like that with the kids, less so um, content delivery. And um, I think that's, that's really great. It fits right in with the model, and I was planning on doing that anyway, so... Um, That's where we're at at DCI this year.
0: Perfect. And yeah, it is good to hear that your admin's on board with sort of approaching the school year and live synchronous sessions as a community building and sort of Q&A time. You know, one of the things that we're concerned organizationally with is that folks are going to feel like they have to use those live synchronous sessions to lecture, which we know isn't particularly engaging. Um, So we're going to talk a little bit about that today, about how you can sort of balance live and, and synchronous sessions versus asynchronous sessions moving forward. Um, but let's go ahead and get started with kind of the core of what we're talking about today, which is rolling this out. You know, most folks who start this model, whether you're an existing implementer or a brand new implementer, are going to be running the model with students who've never actually done it before, right? Even if you've been teaching this way for years, the general assumption is your students haven't experienced a classroom quite like this before. So can first you, Monty, talk a little bit about How you approach the kind of first couple days slash weeks of class um, with your students when you're introducing the model to them. And and briefly talk about like what's different about rolling out a model like this one versus how you taught traditionally prior to learning this model.
2: Yeah, so I remember last year, the biggest piece was that I was really excited about this. And so whenever I even started my discussions with students about rolling out modern classroom, I just tried to be really excited about it and, you know, to get them excited. And, you know, my big aim was to make sure they understood that this could be something truly revolutionary for them and like their learning in science. Um, I taught eighth grade, so by the time students reach eighth grade, they were very settled into this, I'm either good or not good at science. And so I was really hoping that by doing the model, many of them would feel that change. So what I did in the beginning of last year is I was just, you know, very vocal with them about you know, trying out the model without, you know, with very low stakes. So I remember actually talking to you last summer, Kareem, about how to do this. And you mentioned, yeah, have them practice the model by doing the model. And, you know, at first it was very confusing, but, you know, after I took some time and like really thought about it, I just, I created my own video, you know, explaining modern classroom. And I created a set of guided notes to go with, um, the video and, I used HyperDocs in my class last year. So I put everything together in a HyperDoc. And I made sure to really use all of the tools that I knew that I would use pretty much throughout the school year, you know, as that first intro, you know, lesson to them on Modern Classroom. So, you know, pretty much after the relationship building and all that other stuff, I, you know, rolled out the model to them by having them practice. And it took, you know, on average two to three days, depending on the student. Um, And, you know, it was just a very different experience because in the past, you know, after, you know, the one or two days of getting to know the students, I feel like I jumped right into content and just started trying to teach them the stuff without fully knowing who they were as a learner, Um, just because of pacing and I really didn't have anything else to do. But I feel like you know, by rolling out Modern Classroom and really having them learn the model, it truly gave me additional time to to really see who works fast and who works slow and, you know, really see who can read a document and understand and who is going to need more guidance. So I feel like whenever I did start rolling out content, I was a little bit clearer on kind of their learning needs, which was really interesting to see.
0: Yeah, I love it. Wow. You say a lot of fantastic stuff I want to touch on there about sort of the power of rolling out the model and its capacity to sort of facilitate relationship building to kind of create a metacognitive experience around the learning experience at the onset. I love what you shared there. Zach, do you have anything to add around sort of how you thought about rolling it out back in the day? And then we can talk a little bit more about how you're going to roll it out remotely this year.
1: Yeah. Well, actually I'm going to add on to, to what Monty said. I'll just actually echo what Monty said. The, the like practicing with the model before you roll out the model or learning the model by doing the model. And the model is actually very clear for the kids. And so, so I do a, a a lesson zero that basically teaches them how the class is going to go. But setting aside the content in the video and in the lesson, they're doing it. So the instruction to the kids um, is just to go to lesson zero and do it. And then the instructions within the lesson are are stepwise. So it's like watch the video, then do whatever the task is, which in this case for me is going to be a really simple thing that they have to do anyway uh, about setting up an account on a website and then show me that you did it. And then I check that and that's the mastery check. So they have to sort of conquer the model in order to master the lesson. And that's how I, uh, that's how I plan on rolling it out with them.
0: Yeah, no, that's fantastic. A couple of things I want to highlight for folks, because when I first did this model, I didn't actually roll it out that way. And that was before, you know, we had trained our first round of fellows. So I introduced the model in sort of a traditional lecture format, and then the first time they watched an instructional video would be my first math content lesson. And I remember doing it the first year and, and it feeling weird because I was like, why am I lecturing the syllabus at them? That doesn't make any sense if I don't really believe in the power of lectures um, in their traditional format. So I learned after my first year of implementation how silly it was that I didn't teach the students the model using the model. And then more importantly, I think Monty and Zach, you both highlighted the importance of using low stakes content initially so that kids actually get comfortable with the routines, right? Because if you launch the model with a challenging content lesson, your kids are actually juggling two different things at the same time. They're juggling like this new learning environment where they're self-directed, where they're no longer sort of kind of taking a sit and listen approach to teaching and learning. And on top of that, they might be learning an actual new content skill. And that's kind of overstimulating for some students. For some students, it may not be, but for other students, it is. So I think there's real power. And having students learn the model through the model for a multitude of reasons, but probably the biggest being that it's a great way to teach the kids the model through low-stakes content, where their mastery check is actually, you know, answering questions about what's in your syllabus or how they're going to be graded this year or what the core components of a class structure is like. So, you know, every kid can master that lesson, right? It doesn't really matter who you are as a student and what your prerequisite skills are, but during that experience, you're actually learning the model itself.
1: So you asked me also about... Thinking back as how I implemented the model before, and um, and you mentioned that you okay. So here's here's what I was going to say. I I did start last year when I was implementing the model. I started off by basically lecturing my syllabus, um, and I did a bunch of like activities with the kids. This was in person, right? In the classroom. Um, we, co- we played, name that tune, like the kids name a song and then I play it and the rest of the class has to guess. So it's like fun activities that sort of are icebreakers, right? Um, when you were, were teaching and, and you were implementing to the model, did you do stuff like that? Or was your first activity, like watch the video, like get right to it?
0: You know, it's a great question and actually builds on one of the things that Monty mentioned. And Monty, you were talking about this idea that you get to know your students really well. And, you know, one of the things that I always found frustrating about sort of traditional teacher PD and what folks would tell me about how I should run a classroom is, you know, everyone would say relationship building. Relationships are everything. And then the solution to that was to do a bunch of activities. But what I found to be the most impactful, particularly with older students, was to just have one-on-one conversations with them. So, what I thought was really powerful about starting the first day or the second day of class with them watching an instructional video about the model was I made it a point for myself to just walk around the room and have a one on one conversation about life with every single student. So, you know, I used it as an opportunity to get more one on one time with kids to learn about their, you know, passions, their likes and dislikes, their goals. You know, if they didn't like math, I wanted to hear them say that. If they loved math, I wanted to hear them say that. I wanted to kind of shake up some of those you know, traditional norms that may have thought about teaching and learning and have great discussions with the kids. Now, with that being said, Zach, I think there's a difference between getting to know your kids on a one-on-one basis and then also doing collaborative activities that build community. So I did a little bit of both, right? I also started class off with sort of community building icebreaker style things so that the kids got to know each other well. Um, But the bulk of it was done through the model still. Now, Zach, talk to me a little bit and Monty, you as well, because it sounds like you have a hybrid situation here. Starting with you, Zach, because you're going 100% remote. Like, is there a difference between how you're approaching the start of the school year with the model now that you're going remote versus in person, or is it quite similar? Uh,
1: I would say it's pretty similar. I mean, I think that we talked about this in the first episode. the The flexibility of the model allowed the the transition from in classroom to distance learning. It it the flexibility of the model allowed that transition to be very smooth um and i think that students this year are probably expecting some amount of video instruction anyway and so i'm planning on essentially rolling it out that same way with a lesson zero that says this is how my class is going to work um i feel like a lot of teachers are going to do something like that you don't even have to call it the modern classroom's model although i will uh, like capital m capital c i think that kids are expecting videos and so i'm just going to tell them here's how the videos are going to be presented to you this is what you have to do while you're watching. This is what you have to do after you watch the video. And and that's, that's my plan. That's the model.
0: Yeah. And you know, what that speaks to for me and what's so important is you know this model is fundamentally durable in the distance learning space of course still at its best in the in person environment but when I, when i hear you say that not much is changing from a rollout perspective it makes me feel good that when we empower teachers during this time with a model like this one it sort of operates kind of smoothly both in person and remotely and you can make that transition comfortably monty what about you i mean i know you're you're kind of walking into a school year that almost looks more different than Zach's because there's a hybrid situation. And to some degree, that's uniquely challenging because it's like there's a level of uncertainty that I think maybe Zach doesn't have because he knows it's fully virtual. So how are you approaching this year, Monty, with regards to rolling this thing out?
2: Yeah, this is actually something that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about over the last couple of weeks. The biggest reason is because it seems every week there's a different directive that has come from the district about what we're doing, mainly because... Um, you know, if no one knows the state of Florida issued an executive order saying that all schools had to open brick and mortar for any, you know, parent and student who um, signed up for that option. And so my district actually wanted to go full virtual for at least four weeks, maybe longer, um, but got some pushback from the state. So right now they told us one week of e-learning, um, before we transition to in-person classes. And so, I've actually been assigned three of my six classes are going to be fully virtual while the other three will be in person. And so the fully virtual classes, what's interesting about them is there's this platform that they're using called Edge And uh, apparently all of the content is going to come from Edge And the teacher is really acting as more of a facilitator, I guess, to put grades into the grade book and, you know, be a point person of contact. So, I've been really thinking through you know, the, the parts of the model that I have control over, because I actually can't make my own instructional video, and I actually can't have them do any of my work. So yes, this is something I've actually been playing a lot with right now of how to make it my class while, I guess, not really providing them with any of the, the content.
0: Right. And that's just for the virtual ones, right? That's not for the ones yeah. that... Got it. And That's then what about the students. and what about for the non virtual environment where they're not providing you with content? Is there any difference in the way that you're thinking about rolling it out this year? Or are you kind of stick into the same structure you used last year.
2: I believe for the most part that I'm going to stick to the same structure as I did last year. Um, I think the really great thing about the model is that um, it's really easy to. I mean, while we love collaboration, it's also really easy to have them, you know, work independently, um, which you know, we have to keep them separate at school anyway now. So I think this model actually works really, really well for the period of time that we're in right now. Perfect. Fantastic.
0: And, you know, shifting a little bit from like those first day or two, right, where you're actually just explaining the model to students, I think, you know, generally speaking, across the board, modern classrooms, implementers use the model to teach the model. They build these sort of unit zeros and lesson zeros that kind of introduce what the actual model looks like and the mastery checks are assessing classroom structures and grading principles and all that kind of stuff. But what about sort of the, the first couple weeks? How long would you say it takes for students to actually get comfortable with the model where they're walking into class and they're not asking you about structures and systems, but instead picking up where they left off, you know, starting their guided notes or their assignment or their mastery check and all that good stuff. Now, Zach, I'll let you start with this one. Um, You know, how long do you think it takes students to adjust to this new learning environment?
1: Yeah, I think it depends on the kid. It depends on each student. Um, Some of my students got it immediately Uh, within a week or a few weeks, and some of them needed to be directed to the pacing tracker until the end of the year. Um, I will say, though, that I was surprised by some of the students that got it quickly, who I'd taught before, and I didn't think were going to be as successful as they were based on my prior experience with them. I think that the model, um, it's, it's not what students expect, and if it's your first time implementing it. It's not what the teacher expects either. And so a lot of kids that, I mean, I think that we don't give all the kids enough credit sometimes. Like every single kid is doing their best. Every kid wants to be successful in that classroom. And this model, like if it gets the teacher off their back a little bit, it lets the kids thrive. And so your question is, how long did it take for the majority of students to get uh, comfortable with the model? And I, I would say it was within a month, but like I would just emphasize how, Some of those students were a surprise for me, and I was really happy to see that.
0: Right. And, you know, I think it's really interesting because the diversity of learners, like, I read an article not that long ago about how a certain portion of kids are actually thriving in the distance learning environment. Certainly, I think a fraction of the larger population of students. But I think what that speaks to is like, we don't actually know all the different learning styles of our students. Um, And you will be pleasantly surprised with some of your students and their capacity to just be self-directed learners. And it sort of unleashes a new level of potential. And then on the flip side, you might be, you know, concerned about a certain group of your students who really struggle with self-direction and kind of taking ownership of learning. Uh, Monty, what do you think? How long did it take for your kids to kind of adjust when you rolled this out last year? And, you know, how did you frame that with them?
2: Yeah, I would say on average it took most about a month to get it. But I also echo Zach in that some of them just every day they came in, you had to tell them, hey, open up the progress tracker, you know, take out your post-it note, write your notes down. Um, but yeah, I think for the most part, about a month and Um, I would say that even the kids who needed the prompting every day, they knew the routines and the procedures of the class, which I think was an upside, even though I still had to tell them, they still, they knew what they were supposed to do. They just didn't until I physically told them.
0: Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, one thing to bring up about that is, and I think I've, I've probably talked about this with so many different modern classrooms, implementers, the students that don't take to it quickly, the reasons they don't reaffirm the importance of the model Yes. It's like, you know, when when you have a student who's struggling to kind of capture how the model works, it's actually a red flag that that student really needs support with self-direction, you know, self-motivation, self-awareness. So, you know, we've had some teachers at times get a little bit frustrated, especially early on. They might have a class period that's uniquely challenging for them to manage, but they say like, I can't stop doing this model because this is what my students actually need. The fact that they are struggling with this is a, a greater indication of how important it is that I am putting students that control their own learning. It doesn't mean that I may not make need to make adjustments, you know, more scaffolds and structure and all that good stuff. But every time I hear a teacher share the challenges with kids adjusting, they also always couple that with sort of this re- reaffirmation that this is actually what they need to be doing with their students. So I always thought that that was a really interesting sort of metacognitive experience as an educator to be like, wait, the reason they're struggling is because they need more of it, which is sort of an odd kind of progression.
1: Monty, I'm, I'm curious to ask you, because I remember we did the fellowship together, and I remember you and I were both kind of in that in that zone where it's really excited, but <laughs> kind of like not sure what was going to happen, right? Um, and I remember you said, I don't remember the exact words you used, but basically that you'd like to have a like a well-controlled classroom like you'd like to have um do you remember saying this yes I do like to manage your classroom and I'm just curious setting aside how long it took for the students to get comfortable how about for you like how did you how how would you react to having said that now like did you change your expectations or did you did you adapt the model to those expectations or or what?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because at my new school now, I tell people all the time, you know, when they're getting to know you and they ask about like my classroom management style. And I tell them, I was like, yo, I used to be this very intense, like micromanager of a teacher, everything like ducks in a row. I like the kids to do what I asked when I asked. And, you know, last year it took me a really long time. Kareem will tell you every time him or Rob came to my class, I was freaking out about how everything seemed unorganized and no one was doing what they were supposed to. And they were just waking, wasting so much time. And Kareem was always like, yo, it looks really good. What are you talking about? <laughs> so I think it took me longer than it took the kids to like fully be comfortable. It, I, I think it was like November before I felt fully comfortable uh, just letting everything be how it was um, and, you know, deal with the controlled chaos of my class. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up, Zach and Monty. You know, I've, I've
0: watched Monty's class many a times and it was, it was, Monty's probably, like many teachers, you're so incredibly hard on yourself. So it was always a fascinating experience where Monty would email me and I'd be coming in and she'd be like, you know, I'm really worried about this and I'm really worried about that. And then I walk into her class and I'm just kind of like, what is she talking about? <laughs> like 95% level of engagement, beautiful controlled chaos, incredibly calm and you know it just kind of points to this idea that you know and i think monty you've learned this now that you know educators are taught to be micromanagers right it's like it's like ingrained in sort of teacher professional development that you have to have all these behavior management strategies and you're checking for engagement and the observer comes in and 11 out of 19 kids are engaged and that's a problem and I think the more you do the model, you start to realize that kids actually can control their own learning experience. And when you give them that freedom, they're not going to abuse it. They're actually going to capitalize on it. And then a the few kids who really struggle with it, you're free to actually have those conversations. So thank you for bringing that up, Zach, because it's, it's critical, right? Teachers are oftentimes the people who, who take the longest to adjust. The kids are great. And teachers are like, uh, what's going on? What should I be doing? Is this right? Is this wrong? Yeah. Um, and yeah. you know that is a, a challenge for any educator when you innovate, and particularly if you feel like someone's watching. Um, so I'm going to pivot a little bit to something more uh, specific. And I want to talk a little bit about the pacing tracker. Probably the most common question we get from implementers is about the pacing tracker. You know, they say, Do, does it bother kids? Is um, Is it overwhelming? Uh, is it okay to show kind of student progress through a unit and all that kind of stuff? And, you know, as implementers ourselves, I think we all know that kids actually appreciated the pacing tracker generally, and it didn't kind of feel intimidating or scary to them. And it almost didn't really feel like it was a big part of the classroom aside from it really being a nice healthy structure for them to know where they are and what they need to be doing. Can you all talk a little bit about how you roll the pacing tracker out to students and kind of how you cultivate an environment where that pacing tracker isn't actually intimidating? Uh, Monty, why don't you go ahead and start with that one?
2: Yeah, you know, thinking about it now, I I don't actually think that I even did that much work of, around introducing the pacing tracker. I had one because when I went through the fellowship you were like, you need a pacing tracker. And I was like, all right, I'm going to have a pacing tracker. And so I remember, you know, showing it to kids and just telling them like, hey, this is just going to be the way that we keep track of where we are. And I really kept it as simple as that. And for the most part, um, I actually never had any issues with students, you know, coming to me saying like, oh, I don't like, you know, I don't like this or I don't like that. Um, You know, I used first initial last name last year. Um, which I know, you know, also freaks a lot of people out, you know, this year being in a new district, a new school, I actually probably will make it anonymous just because I don't know their rules around names and other stuff. But I think we freak out more than the kids will, they actually don't care that much like as long as you are framing it, framing it in a way of like, it's not like competition it's not to say that you're behind It's really just to show, you know, what you've mastered and what you need to revise. And, you know, maybe where you need to pick up the pace just a little bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just information, right. And like kids know this information anyways. Um, So what I always found interesting about the public pacing trackers, kids were just like I I know that Mr. Fair, like I'm just trying to pick up where I left off. Thanks for putting that up there. So it didn't even occur to my students at the time uh, that it was in any way, shape or form, like remotely controversial. And, you know, we obviously tell folks whether it's through the online course, whether you're learning it that way or through the mentorship program or just building this out organically, like this is a hundred percent a teacher discretion question. So I tell folks, about 90% of implementers use a public pacing tracker, but another 10% will choose to just use sort of a personal tracker, like a game board structure. Zach, talk to me a little bit about the pacing tracker. What was it like rolling it out with your students? Did you run into any challenges or did it just generally work out quite well?
1: No, it worked out quite well. I th- I think... Um... I've so working with mentees as a as a mentor for modern classrooms. I have come to believe that the pacing tracker might be the most important component in the entire model. You know, it becomes your grade book. It becomes how you keep track of your students. It becomes how you pick which students are going to collaborate with each other. It becomes where you find your teacher helpers. It's how you motivate your students. So, putting aside whether it's intimidating to them or not, um, everything hinges on the pacing tracker. And when you talk about the, the modern classrooms model being a data-driven teaching style, like the pacing tracker is the data. And and so if you can be objective about the data and, and treat the data objectively, then it doesn't feel judgmental when a kid is behind. It feels objective. It feels like you're just telling them, like you said, Kareem, just something that they already know. Yeah, I know I'm two lessons behind and I'm just trying to catch up. And I think that 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 way of couching the data was also helpful in communicating with parents because it's not grades. There's this, there's a lot of stigma and there's a lot of like emotion wrapped up in, in bad grades. And if you say that the kid is getting a bad grade in your class, it makes it sound like you're calling them dumb. Right. But if you say that there are two lessons behind where they should be to finish on time, it doesn't have that same emotional weight. I don't think. Um, and in my experience, no parents ever pushed back. Uh, in the way that they had when their kids were getting low, lower grades and they were asking me to substantiate the low grades, here I could just say, okay, so the student finished three lessons, they mastered three lessons, and we're supposed to be working on lesson five today, right? So the student's a lesson behind or two lessons behind. Um, and and yeah, just sort of taking a step back and looking at it as data as opposed to grades and a measure of how smart you are, uh, that was the the key for me.
0: Yeah. And you know, what I always tell folks is there's really two things that you need to reaffirm with your students for the pacing tracker to be effective. The first is that they can always catch up, right? That's so critical because if I'm a student and I look up at a pacing tracker and I'm on lesson three and I'm supposed to be on lesson five and I have no chance of ever catching up, well, now you're just kind of shaming me, right? You're just telling everyone like, hey, this person's at lesson three, they can't get there. But when kids actually know that they have 100% capability to catch up, right? Undoubtedly, they know they can do that if they put in work, then they don't see it as kind of attack on their ability. But instead, they see it as just a snapshot of information. And then I think, think the second thing is, it's really when the must do, should do, aspire to do framework becomes incredibly important. You know, I always tell folks when we train teachers, that pacing tracker should reflect effort, not ability level. And if you use the must do, should do, aspire to do model effectively, Those kids that are working really hard but falling behind, you're going to excuse them for some lessons. You're going to push them up so that they're actually on pace because if they're working really hard, they should be on pace. And I think that's a really important concept for folks to understand is that if you're behind on the pacing tracker, as a teacher, that should reflect a student who hasn't invested enough time and energy into their work, not indicative of a student who might be struggling with some prerequisite skills that they didn't know going into the class. And I think that that's just so, so important.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think like the guided notes were a great way for me to, to determine that because a lot of students would get stuck on the same lesson over and over. They would revise it. And I would say, okay, you know what? Can I see your guided notes from this video? And they just didn't take them or they were like doodling in the notes. Right. It's it's, it's <laughs> yes. not about how smart they are. You know, it's about their engagement, especially if you're, yeah. if, if you're reducing the lessons down to some sort of a simple task that right. kids can manage.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. And then can you all talk about, and not specific to the pacing tracker, but you know, in the end, the model is not only challenging to implement, but it's also challenging, uh, it pushes students. And naturally, when you're pushing students, um, especially in ways that they're not used to, you're going to get frustrations from students. What were a couple of the most common frustrations that students had, and how did you respond to them? Monty, you can go ahead and start with this one.
2: I think one of the most common frustrations they had is just that I did not give them the opportunity to, like, not do the thing. So they would come to me and just, you know, have all these excuses. I can't do this or or really it was more vocally. I don't want to do this, really, if I'm being honest. Um, And it was just one of those things, of because I feel like everything was very guided. I was like, okay, you know. It's your grade, you know, kind of thing. You you don't have to do it. But I feel like they were just very frustrated with that response because I feel like old me before a modern classroom, I would have very much entered into this banter with them back and forth of like, no, you need to do your work because your grade is going to suffer. And I feel like I would have went back and forth with them. But last year, I was just very adamant of being like, nope, okay, all right, great. You you're in control. So you can sit here the whole period and stare at your Chromebook and not do your work. And that's it. Right.
0: And you know what that what that does, and I think it, you know in the end, whether you're a student or an adult, you learn best from your mistakes. So I think sometimes we as educators, particularly when we teach traditionally, stop kids from making the mistake, which means we stop them from learning from the mistake. So if every single time a kid is disengaged, we say reengage, 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 then we're not even letting the kid realize what happens when they disengage. So one of the cool things, and I've seen you do this in the classroom, right? A student decides that they're not going to invest, you know, the appropriate time and energy in their work for a given day. And you sort of let them work that themselves out. You let, you let them kind of see what happens when they do that. They fall behind in a lesson. Then you go bring that up the next day. Say, hey, FYI, you know, we talked about this yesterday. You didn't use your time wisely. Now look, you've fallen behind. Like, how can we grow from this? How can we improve from this?
1: Yeah, I don't think it's possible to overemphasize how much saying that gets you on the kid's side.
0: Yes. It's amazing what that does to relationships, right? Like, yeah. it, it kids don't want to be micromanaged. It doesn't matter if they're a third grader or a 12th grader. Like, they want to feel like they have a certain amount of autonomy in the classroom. And I think that that's so important because when you honor that autonomy, but also say, hey, you're going to learn from your mistakes as a consequence of this, it's really, really powerful. Yeah. Um, Zach, tell me a little bit more about some frustrations that you, some of your students encountered and sort of how you addressed them throughout the year.
1: Yeah, my students didn't. <laughs> It didn't, the, the challenges that I had with students that, um, well, the students that challenged me, it didn't seem like they were frustrated, but more, I guess, lackadaisical with the work. Like they, the issue that my students were having was that they would look at the due date, which was so far in advance. Like we were so far out from the due date that they would just decide to sort of slack off. Um, and it's really easy to do that. It's, I mean, I procrastinate everyone procrastinates procrastinating is a hard thing to, to resist, but, but um and i think we talked about this last last time in the first episode kareem but the the pacing tracker when they come back the next day or in my case two days later it just makes it so obvious the effect that that has on you right you know it's so hard to catch up and it's so easy to fall behind and and the kids they sense that because i would do you know i would do sort of reflective metacognitive checks at the at the middle and at the end of every unit and at the end of every single unit you know 80% of my kids were like In my next unit, I'm going to try and be on pace. In my next unit, I'm going to use my time better, you know, without fail. And they were getting it. I don't think that they were necessarily putting it into practice every time. That's why they kept saying it over and over. But I do feel like by the end of the year, they had heard themselves saying that enough that they knew that that was their intention. Like that they knew that that's what time management looks like. It's doing the work that you have to do now, doing it now.
0: Yep. And, you know... I think that's that's a great commentary. And I think that's great to point out sort of this this general metacognitive experience students are going to engage in and how powerful reflection then becomes. I always tell folks, like when I try to do reflection in my classroom pre-modern classrooms model, like it was so bad. I would just have kids sort of reflect on their learning and then just say good bad, I like you, I dislike you and then we'd go to the next unit. And this model because the kids are in control of the learning experience, they're also able to actually reflect on what they're doing well and not way better. so I think that that's super super interesting. Um, one thing I wanted to share because it was it was probably the most consistent well, but there were two big frustrations that I noticed from kids and you know what's interesting is you know you all taught middle schoolers I taught 12th graders for a lot of my teaching career. So they were conditioned to use a traditional model by that point. It was like, you know, almost double the number of years your students were in the classroom using a traditional model where my students were really just used to it. So the first thing I saw with students is like this notion. And I think it touches a little bit on what you shared, Monty, this idea that like you actually have to master the skill. And like, if you don't like today's lesson, you can't just do like some sort of Partial credit completion situation and get credit and move on. Like, you have to actually master the lesson. We have a pathway to learning and you're supposed to stay on it. You can't just like jump the path. Um, And I thought that that was a really interesting thing because it was so important for kids to learn. The idea that like just trying something and, you know, scribbling some stuff on a piece of paper does not count towards mastery and doesn't allow you to actually progress. You're going to stay and continue to work on that skill. And it was so important to affirm that concept to students. So that was the first one that I think was really like jarring for kids, but also so important, right? Like I can't think of anything more important than a student actually internalizing the importance of mastering content when you're a teacher. Um, the second thing, and I think I- I'm curious if you all experience this as well. I had a lot of kids in the first couple weeks of class throw the, you're not teaching me
2: um, line
0: to me. Right. And I always thought it was super interesting (laughs) because it was really wild to me. I was like, what do you mean I'm not teaching you? Like I built this video for like an hour last night. Stop telling me I'm not teaching you. And you know, what I realized at the time was the reason they're saying that was because they're actually anxious that they're not going to get to hear my actual voice in person. Like they were worried that somehow they were just going to learn on a computer. And the way that I combated that was that I showed them that by running this model, I could actually spend more time with them. Like, you want to know why I'm actually teaching you? Because after you watch this instructional video, if you're still struggling, you're going to do a one-on-one or a small group instruction with me. And it was my way of saying, look, I'm actually more available now that I'm doing this, not less. And I really thought that was sort of an interesting initial reaction that kids had and to me, the obvious way to respond was to prove to them that I was more available. Did you all see, kind of like, a, I mean, from your general laughter. It sounds like you certainly did get that. Um, Did you all kind of see similar things and did you address it in a similar way or a different way? Uh,
2: Yeah. So I definitely had a few students throw that at me, especially I, it was mostly, you know, kids who have this huge amounts of learned helplessness who are just used to, you know, teachers leaving them alone. They sit in the back, they don't take their notes. Um, And so, you know, a couple of them did throw, oh yeah, you're, you're not really my teacher. You don't teach me anything, you know, and I I did very similar cream. I was just like, yo, this video is actually like full of Content that I worked really hard to create. You know these resources that you're you're using right now to learn this thing. I actually took time to put these together to make sure that you can do this thing. That mastery check that you take to make sure that you uh, know the skills and that you did well on it. You know proves that all of the stuff that I put together for you talk helped you learn the thing that you needed to learn. Um, but yeah, I just try to form it in that aspect.
0: Yeah, and then to prove to them like, look. And if you are actually like, if you did your guided notes, if you watched it, I'm right here. And I'm not stuck delivering that lecture at the front. And when I'm done lecturing, there isn't 20 minutes left in class. Like, I'm here all day long, and I'm here for you. And I think it was so, so important. Zach, do you have any additional thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I, my, I had that experience too. Why don't we have a teacher that actually teaches us? Right. right? And it's like, I would, I would ask them, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean I don't teach you? What would a teacher do? And right. by the time they were able to articulate what they meant, what they were thinking of was me standing in front of the class lecturing. You know, and I think that that goes to what you were saying about them being conditioned to expect that from their teachers.
0: Right. And I mean, in the end, right, that model ends up being more passive for the students. So it's to some degree convenient it's much easier, right, to walk into a classroom and just be able to sit down and sort of try to not be noticed. So I think a lot of times, you know, kids express that because they were frustrated that they had to take control of their own learning experience. I always tell folks, I had a hilarious experience where one student who actually didn't have that complaint, it took them about six months in the school year to realize it was my voice on the video. Oh, um, thanks. So, yeah. So to all the listeners out there, make sure you make it clear to your students from the onset, that that's actually you on that video. Uh, so they appreciate all that hard work that you're putting in because yeah. I think that's so so important. Um, you know, b- before this podcast today ends, I definitely want to talk about uh, delivery of this model to parents because I think for some folks who are learning this model and implementing it, they worry about you know what are parents going to think, and obviously that's incredibly fair, right? You want to be able to ensure that your parents are comfortable with the way that your te- they you're teaching their students. But I think what a lot of people don't know about is how much parents actually appreciate this model. So um, Zach, why don't you go ahead and start and share a little bit about sort of your experience when you rolled this model out? Like what were parent reactions? And then how did it help sort of your relationship with parents and parents' relationship with the the learning in
1: general? And where were their challenges? So I think that the most positive feedback that came from parents in terms of the model wasn't about the model specifically, but about the data that the model gave me to give to the parents. It made communicating with parents really simple and clear. And I I would always feel a little bit like nervous when I would sit down to write an email to a parent whose kid was doing poorly. Um, but this just made it it in the same way that the pacing tracker makes the data objective, I felt like I was just communicating an objective fact. Like I would say, okay, the student is three lessons behind and the due date is is next week, right? But what I'm trying to say is that we can help the student. We can support the student to catch up. Um, and so communicating data in that way, really, I think that it put me on the parents' good side in a lot of ways. Um, and I would hear from parents who would thank me for the, I would send um, every two weeks, I would send out an update and I used mail merges, which was really awesome. If, uh, if you know how to do that, you can send it like an individualized email to every student's parent with their own progress. Super great. Um, I found that the parents who, were pushing back, um, felt like their students were being experimented on. And they felt like in, in the same way that those kids who would tell us to actually teach them, they didn't understand that there could be a classroom in which the teacher wasn't sort of pestering the kid constantly. Right. Um, and I think that it is the same sort of pushback that I would get from a kid who basically wanted to just coast through the class. Um, And I don't think the parents meant it that way. I don't think that they were trying to let their kid be lazy. I just think that it was a new new way of approaching teaching, which it obviously is. And it's very different, but it puts a lot more responsibility on the student. And I think that some parents didn't expect that. And and those were the ones who pushed back. Yeah. And
0: I mean, I think I remember telling you all sort of the 10% rule, right? Yeah. You have to expect that 10% of teachers, uh, colleagues are not going to like this. 10% of admin might not like this. 10% of students might not like it. It's 10% of parents. But if 90% love it, you're probably building something great. And generally speaking, when you innovate, right, there's always going to be a portion of people that react to something new. And if you're used to teaching in a traditional way and you're used to having your students learn in a traditional way, it's going to shake things up a little bit. And You might have some folks that voice a little bit of concern. But I think what you pointed out that I think is so important is the bulk of parents actually so appreciate the level of data Mm -hmm. and also the level of access, like the capacity to, with their kid, open up their Google Classroom or Canvas or Schoology and learn the skills with them and see that they can catch up and all that kind of stuff to me, I always found that parents really appreciated that. What about you, Monty? Any sort of experience um, and ideas you can share around A, what parents struggled with, and how you kind of delivered this to parents, and then B, sort of what they appreciated about the model?
2: Yeah, so I think that, you know, most parents, you know, in the beginning, especially, you know, by the time I got around to really talking to most parents about this, it was back to school night, which is about, you know, a few weeks into the school year. and So most of them, had heard the catchphrase from their kid of like modern classroom. And so, you know, most parents came was like, can you talk about this modern classroom thing? And they were really curious. They were more so curious than anything. Um, And then you did, I did have the few who were just kind of like, you're giving my eighth grader, like you're going to let my eighth grader make his own decisions about what he does in class. And I was like, yeah, you know? And so I feel like I did have some that were skeptical in the beginning, not necessarily pushback. They were just kind of like, I know my child and my child can't do this is really what a parent actually said to me. And, you know, my response was like, we'll see. Yeah. You know, and I I feel like I I did, you know, the model forced me to communicate a little bit more frequently, um, you know, and I definitely did do that. I like Zach, I sent a a biweekly email to them with the I I sent out the pacing tracker. um, I sent out the current hyperdoc that we were working on. You know, I love hyperdocs. And because everything was late, I was so easy to just give parents access to that as well. Um, And I just told them kind of like what we were doing. And you know, I had some parents that would email me and say, well, I noticed my kid, you know, with their kids CC'd and they'd be like, why are you two lessons behind? You know, and it was just it was really great because there was a handful of parents that helped me help the child stay accountable. And it was just like a really, really great thing to see um, for the parent to just be like, why are you here? Like, right, what are you doing in, in class? You know, and it was just really great. And even even when I had issues of, you know, like a kid misbehaving or a kid with a low grade, when I would conference with the parents, I would sit down with them and I would open up the Google Classroom and I would show them what the kid is supposed to do every day. And the parent would be like, this is what she gives you every day. And you're, what are you doing? Um. So I think that it honestly, it, it made me look really good in the eyes of the parents, if I'm being completely honest.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I'm so glad you brought this up because the first time I did a parent conference with the modern, having done the modern classrooms model, I was so nervous. So I was like, what's gonna happen? You know, are are parents gonna push back and all that kind of stuff. And what I realized was it was actually the complete opposite. And what that told me was a lot of times when there's sort of a battle between teacher, parent, and student, it's a question of responsibility, right? One person thinks it's another person's responsibility. Maybe student thinks that teacher is not teaching them correctly. Parent thinks that student's not learning correctly. Parent thinks that teacher is not teaching student correctly. So there's this like really vague understanding of who's responsible for what. And as a result, like no one's really clear on why the child is struggling in the class. And what I think this model does is it actually makes that a lot clearer. And parents realize that very quickly at a parent conference meeting. So when a student comes in with their parent and they're like, why does my student have a C in this class? And we can debate, you know, letter grades endlessly. But the reality is most teachers have to give letter grades. And when parents ask that question, you know, back in the day when I taught tradition, I'd be like, well, you know, here's my answer. And it didn't really make all that much sense because the letter grade didn't make that much sense. But when I was able to articulate to parents now, like your child has a C because they've mastered seven out of 10 lessons thus far. They can still master the remaining three, and here's where everything is, and here's the pacing, and here's what you can do to improve. And the parent, it's like literally the parent would just stop looking at me and start looking at their kids. And I think what that taught me was that's what happens when you give students the power to control their own learning, right? When you give students the power to control their own learning, they realize and their parents realize that they're responsible for the grade that they get. Right. They can control their own future and their own outcome. And that is a big message to send kids and parents, not just for your class and how they perform in middle school science or music or in high school math, but how they can kind of approach you know, life in general, that they can control some of the outcomes that they generate and that they can kind of capitalize and be these self-directed, self-aware you know learners that can really thrive outside of your classroom. I think that that's just so, so important. So I'm glad you realized that as well, Monty, because I think it's critical and exciting step. And hopefully listeners can kind of embrace that and realize that actually parents might really appreciate what this model does um, for your relationship with them and their relationship with their students, their child's learning. You know, and other quick things, FYI to all the listeners, like, you know, building a a quick handout for parents, right? Articulating the model in a syllabus, like any of that good stuff can also be really valuable as well. Just providing a nice synopsis of the way the class is going to work at the front end can be a really easy way to push this out. Um, now, before uh, we close out everything, I just wanted to to give both you, Monty, and Zach the opportunity to share kind of your three biggest pieces of advice. And if you were speaking to a teacher right now who's like, tomorrow's my first day doing this model. I don't care if they're going in person or remotely. Like, what are the three things you would tell them going into the school year? Monty, you can go ahead and start.
2: Um, the first thing I would tell them is to take it one day at a time. Um, I know as teachers, we bite off more than we can chew one day at a time. Second piece of advice is to trust your kids, um, which I know for some of us is, I was one of those people, extremely difficult to trust them, but put some trust in them. And then the final piece is to trust yourself, because again... I was really hard on myself. And I think part of it is because I did not trust myself to do this model well. And because I didn't trust myself, I was constantly at battle of like, oh, my gosh, they're not learning. Oh, my gosh. You know, just so critical. So I would say really trust yourself. um, And those other two pieces will naturally fall into place. Love it. Love it. Fantastic. Zach, what about you?
1: So I would say first um, lesson videos aren't different from regular lectures. They aren't hard to make. You can lecture to a group of 20 kids. You can lecture to a computer. Um, second, I would say be okay with controlled chaos, um, which Monty, this is something that you and I both learned over the the past year. Um, controlled chaos can be fine, um, and not every single student has to be engaged one hundred percent of the time. I think that's just not a realistic expectation of, in my case, you know, thirteen year olds. Um, and the third the third piece of advice would be to enjoy hanging out with the kids. They have funny things to say to you, and um, we want to show them that they matter. And we want to show them that their voices are valued in our classrooms. And so listen to the things that they have to say, even if they're ridiculous and you don't have any idea what they're talking about, um, because it's Fortnite or whatever, (laughs) just listen to them and see what they have to say because they're fun. They're fun to hang out with.
0: Yeah. What a lovely way to kind of close us out. Um, thank you Monty and Zach, uh, for sharing your thoughts on sort of first day rollouts. I hope the listeners found this valuable. I know Teachers across the country right now are working tirelessly to navigate the challenges of the school year. And if you've dove into the Modern Classrooms model for the first time, you know, it's a thrilling and exciting experience, but also challenging, you know, embrace the challenges. Innovation's hard, but you're doing it for a reason and it really does pay off. Remember that you can always learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org. That's our website. Um, You can learn our model for free on our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. That's where all of our tutorials and resources are. Exemplar units from Zach, Monty, myself, and many other teachers, as well as tutorials and resources on everything that we do. Um, uh, Monty, where can folks follow you? Do you have a Twitter account that folks can reach you at? Um, Do you have a way that folks can actually access some of your content and materials aside from the Modern Classrooms resources?
2: Yeah, so myself and another fellow Demi who is also a really great implementer, we're actually building um a website called Periodically Science. It'll be in the show notes. Um and the goal of this website is to kind of make a comprehensive place where, you know, science educators can go to find, you know, modern classroom ready resources. Um and we're really hoping that eventually this will be a place where not just our work is showcased, but, you know, just anybody who wants to, you know, give access to something for, you know, a science teacher to use, we'll, we we would love to have it on our site. Um, and I'm also pretty active in the Facebook group. So, you know, if you have questions for me, you can definitely find me in the Facebook group. Um, I respond to uh, all chats and comments to me um, to help out as much as possible. And I am on Twitter. My Twitter account is Count of Monte Cristo. Um, love it.
1: <laughs> that's, a yeah, great, that's, that's a great. That's
2: that's me. That's where I am on Twitter.
1: <laughs> Love it. How did you
2: get that? <laughs> you know, I I got all sorts of weird weird nicknames as a kid, and <laughs> I got called Monte Cristo a lot. So <laughs> I've embraced it. So yeah, count of Monte Cristo. That's me. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. And Zach,
0: where
1: can folks find you? Uh, you can follow me at ZP Diamond on Twitter. Perfect.
0: Fantastic. And then for myself, I mean, you can follow the Modern Classrooms Project Twitter account at Modern Class Proj, P-R-O-J. You can follow me at Kareem Farah, 23. This will all be in the show notes. And then like Monty said, the Facebook group that is currently um, just cultivating unbelievable collaboration amongst free users and and the folks in our mentorship program, it's really growing. There's 2000 users in there. They're collaborating organically, answering each other's questions. It's been wonderful to see. We'll make sure to put a link to the Facebook group in the show notes as well. Um, And you know, In addition to that, if anyone does want additional support, they want to get mentored by someone like Monty or Zach, make sure to check out our mentorship program that's featured both in the free course as well as our website if you really want to explore sort of a more comprehensive support system. Um, and that just about covers it folks, we'll be trying to generate our podcasts every two weeks. So thank you for listening. Look out for episode three that will be coming out in a few weeks and have a wonderful rest of your week. Bye, everyone.
1: Bye, Kareem. Bye, Monty.
2: Bye. Thanks for having me.